Welcome to CAE Pilot Podcast, a podcast that brings together aviation professionals to discuss life as a pilot, training, and career advice. You can find us at cae.com forward slash CAE Pilot dash podcast or subscribe to our show on your audio podcasting platform of choice. You can also find our video podcast on our YouTube channel. Welcome to this episode of the CAE Pilot Podcast. Today we have something very cool, maybe a bit counterintuitive, but I think it's going to inspire you. Captain Emma's office for the past 11 years has been in the flight deck of an A320. In that time, she's flown over 8,000 hours, has flown VIPs, seen crazy sunsets and sunrises and the Northern Lights. But she's also had a life revolving around her flying roster, and we all know what that's like. Missing weddings, birthdays, and of course, friends and concerts and all the things that airline people tend to miss. But her life in aviation sort of got interrupted recently, as it did for many people. And while often we discuss how to get back into aviation, Captain Emma's done something a bit different, and she's decided to fold her wings, if you will. And she's taken a voluntary redundancy from the airline um, she worked for. But she's not really leaving aviation altogether, because she's got a very interesting um, project called Project Wingman, And I'm not going to spoil a surprise. I'm going to let her talk about it in a bit. Now, you might know Captain Emma from the ITV series Inside the Cockpit. And if you do, you'll want to hear what she has to say today. Captain Emma, welcome to the CAE Pilot Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here. And it's uh, great, great to be able to talk to you all today. We're really happy to have you. Now, we always start off with, um, I guess, some sort of preliminary questions. We always like to know how people got into aviation. How did you fall in love with aviation? Well, I had a kind of roundabout route into aviation in that I didn't grow up in a flying family in any way, shape or form. I did really enjoy watching things fly. I was a young ornithologist um, when I was about seven. I think I joined up for that. And we lived near to Duxford, which is an aviation museum in the southeast of England. And so we used to go there a lot and climb all over the planes and things. And my brother and I would sit in them and you were allowed to do that then. And we'd sort of pretend we were flying and racing each other and things. So we kind of, there was an interest there. Um, I did projects at school on flight, but I didn't grow up saying I'm going to be a pilot. So it was really just um, a series of events that I look back on and realized it was something that I wanted to do. And one of the catalysts, I guess, was um, seeing the first space shuttle come into Stansted on the back of the 747. It did a tour of the world. And we went along there and Stansted in those days was just a great big long runway with grass all around it and a shed. And we parked on the grass and went and saw this massive aircraft come in with the space shuttle on the back of it. And I thought, that's it. I need to be an astronaut. And uh, the poster that I bought on that day and had on my bedroom wall for the rest of my childhood is still somewhere in my house, but not up on a wall anymore. Um, but actually, even then, um, I didn't go to university to become a pilot initially or anything like that. I decided I wanted to be a corporate lawyer working in London, bossing people around in the corporate world. And I really liked that idea. Um, so I actually went to university to study um, history with the idea of then doing a law conversion at the end of that. And in my second year, I was walking through the Freshers' Fair and there's this big poster saying, learn to fly for free. And I'd had a flying lesson at 18 for my birthday, um, but four lessons after that. And I thought, oh, that's great. I'll go and learn to fly for free. And it was the University Air Squadron. So um, that particular branch, I went, I went to Leeds University and it was Yorkshire University Air Squadron, which um, I'm sure most people would agree is the best of all the University Air Squadrons in the country. And um, anyway, I signed up. Um, the next day I basically got cold feet and pulled my application said no it's not for me can't do it and uh, the recruiters came around and said why have you done that please put your application back in so I did and um, passed selection and became an officer cadet on the um, squadron which was down at Aria Finningley at the time which was where all the navigators did their training and there was a couple of other squadrons as well so I spent two years um, doing that, learning to fly, being taught by the Air Force, which was amazing. We flew in um, bulldogs, shorts bulldogs, 
which are now museums. And, um, and it was an amazing opportunity. But I didn't go on and join the Air Force. I did aptitude tests at Cranwell. But actually, the weekend after I had joined the squadron, I met a boy who has now been my husband for the last 25 years. So my life took a little bit of a different path than I had maybe expected it to. I didn't go on and do the law conversion either. I did do my degree. And when we got married, we moved up to the north of Scotland, where I am now. And I didn't fly again for eight years. And um, as part of my husband's military career, we then got a posting to New Zealand. And while we were out there, I took up flying again and gained my PPL, CPL, multi-engine instrument rating. And as we were moving back to the UK, signed up for Bristol Ground School to do the um, ATPL ground exams, converted all my licenses back to um, the, the UK licensing system. And then actually um, got a scholarship to become an instructor. So the, uh, the, what, was now, it's, what is now the Honourable Company of Air Pilots was then called the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. And I got a GAPAN Diamond Jubilee Scholarship, which has only ever been awarded once, to become a flight instructor. So I did that for three years, um, initially down in uh, High Wycombe and then up in Scotland. And then literally was in the right place at the right time for a training company to open up its application process to do a type rating if you already held a license. And I applied for it, got it, and started with my airline 11 years ago. It's, it's funny because whenever you ask that question of people, there's a lot of similarities. And one of them, the, the starting point, obviously, is looking into the sky and seeing something fly, which is, uh, and everybody's got a different path, which I think is interesting for the times we currently find ourselves in. But I think it's, uh, it's interesting to hear that you didn't fly for so many years and then got back into it, which is, um, which is very neat. Now, when you look at your career, what would you say were some of your best memories? I've got so many great memories, and you've already alluded to one of them. The northern, seeing the Northern Light in the way that I have done has been a pretty much lifelong ambition. But I've also met some incredible people along the way. While I was going through my flying training in New Zealand, actually, I met a really great guy called Les Munro, who was the last remaining um, Danbust, original Danbusters pilot. And I met and got to know him, which was just such a great privilege. So there's been all kinds of things like that. Um, and it's been things like, the, it's the things you see. It's seeing the Atlas Mountains as you go into Marrakesh and flying down towards Tel Aviv and thinking, wow, this is a really long way away, you know. <laughs> um, so the flying that I've done has been restricted to sort of Europe and North Africa um, kind of area. So I haven't, you know, crossed the date line or anything like that, um, in a, not in a professional capacity anyway. But it's those things that um, have been, have made up the most fantastic memories for me, it's the things I've seen and the people I've met. And what would you say has been the funniest or most bizarre situation you found yourself in? Well, I think the most bizarre situation I've ever found myself in was a long time ago when I was still a first officer and we pulled onto stand in Geneva and nobody came to the aircraft to plug in the headset or move the steps up to the aircraft. And we were sitting there thinking, well, what's going on, you know? And eventually somebody came and said there, was, there had been a wildcat strike, um, ground handling strike announced just then as we landed and that nobody was going to come and take the bags off or get the passengers off or anything. And we just thought, oh, great, that, there goes our day then. And um, actually, we managed to get to a point where the passengers were able to disembark and we couldn't leave because we couldn't get the bags off the aircraft. So... The captain and I, who's a good friend of mine, actually, were walking around the aircraft going, this is ridiculous. There's a, there's a cart over there. We could just drive it up to the aircraft, chuck the bags on it, and they can take them away later on. And we can get the, get the passengers on and go back. And we were kind of talking it through. And, and the captain very wisely said, well, let's, let's just think about this for a minute, shall we? Let's not be too rash. So um, basically, we, we managed to persuade someone to drive this baggage cart up to the aircraft. And I went in the hold and the captain stood at the bottom and we emptied the hold of all the bags, got them onto the cart, got the new passengers on board and went back to Stansted, which is where we were operating from. And we were able to complete our day. In fact, no, we didn't go back to Stansted. We went to Leeds. We were on a Leeds W. 
And what was even better about that was the, man the fact we'd managed to do it. We managed to do the rest of our day, um, more or less, because by the time we went back to Geneva the second time, the strike had been called off, presumably because we'd ruined it for them. And um, as we arrived in Leeds, so um, a couple got off the aircraft, who I didn't know had been on board at the time, and they were friends of my in-laws. So it was kind of a good win there <laughs> in the end. But it was, I'll never, ever forget being inside the hold of the aircraft and thinking, not sure we're really meant to be doing this, but we cleared it with the company and checked that we hadn't broken any rules or, or laws, more importantly. And um, yeah, it was quite a, not the normal sort of situation I'd expect to see myself in. Sort of sounds like your first experience in business aviation. <laughs> yeah, it would be a good foray into it, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, what would you say are the biggest challenges you've had in your career? The biggest challenge by far was failing my first command. And I'm very open about this. I don't see it as being something I shouldn't talk about. Um, I had had six months off long-term sick and I came back to work and decided I wasn't going to put myself back into the command process until I was ready. But typically um, I wasn't a very good judge at that point of whether or not I was ready because I wanted to be a captain. And that's something I think I'm not alone in. So I went back into the process, got through the assessments and went on to the command course. And um, for various reasons, and one of which, not the least of which, was that I simultaneously slipped three discs in the middle of my back during a sim. And, um, and then managed to carry on and do another sim, which I then failed. And that just led to this whole process where I just didn't make it through the rest of the course, I think. My mojo had gone and I wasn't ready for it. And it was heartbreaking and crushing um, all over, all at the same time. And really, really difficult. And I spent a week after that thinking, right, I'm never going to fly again. That's it. Game over. It's not for me. And then I thought, well, I'll fly again, but I'm not going to fly for the same airline again because it's just too embarrassing. It's too humiliating. And it, of course, in the end, I went back to the same airline and I, I spent a year back in the right-hand seat of the aircraft. I had some amazing um, instructors that, and trainers who got me through that process and were just very, very gentle and sensitive. I completely took on board all my mistakes and the errors that I'd made. And I reckon I had the best year of my flying life sitting in the right-hand seat, knowing that I hadn't been ready the first time and preparing myself for the second time when I completed a successful command course. But that was a really, really big deal for me because I had got all the way to um, 43 and never failed anything in my life before. And suddenly I'd failed. I felt like I'd failed myself and my family. And it was really, really difficult to cope with. But I found that actually by owning it and being honest about it, it was a really, um, it, was a, it turned out to be a really positive experience actually in the end. Must be very liberating to to be open about something and not feel that you have to cover it up somehow or be embarrassed by it. Well, there's nothing to be embarrassed by, is there? And, you know, it's okay to say I got that wrong, mm. and I think you grow that way. And I think that you really need to take control of things like that because it will eat you up. Otherwise, I could have spent the last four years blaming everybody else for why I didn't pass my command the first time round. Um, or the last five, five and a half years now. Um, but that wouldn't have got me anywhere. In fact, it probably wouldn't have got me through the second command course. And in the meantime, so, you've helped, you've probably helped a ton of people too. Absolutely. And because I have been very open and honest about it, people have often come to me and said, could you talk to this person and just um, help them through this or give them some guidance because they're coming up to their command? And I've happily done it because if people have, can learn from my mistakes, that's even better because then they haven't had to go through the heartache I had to go through. Right. And then um, I was but lucky enough to be able to book a holiday to Malta shortly afterwards and uh, literally <coughs> spent uh, two weeks sitting by the pool thinking, I just don't want to have anything to do with the rest of the world ever again. And sort of was able to then come back licking my wounds much more gently. <laughs> <laughs> but as you say, in 2016, you did become a captain. And given your experience, what advice would you have for future captains who are listening right now? What tips would you give them? Well, first of all, I'd say don't rush into it because that was, 
my mistake really um you might be rushing into it because you're early on in your career and you think it's the only thing that you need to do but you're sitting in that left-hand seat for a very long time so actually another year here or there is going to stand you in good stead and build more experience so don't there's no pressure to become a captain as young as you can be you know you want you want to be good when you get into that seat and that doesn't mean necessarily that you're the best pilot in the world i think it means that you you know, perhaps that you might be a more empathetic person or better at um, self-criticism or something like that. Um, But the best bit of advice really that I'd pass on is what was told to me um, years ago, which is just choose two captains you really love flying with and think about why you love flying with them and try and emulate that as much as possible. Wow, that's great great advice. Yeah, I think I I definitely took that on board. Um, And the other advice is, Take two captains you don't enjoy flying with, think about why, and don't be them. And think about why you don't like flying with them. What do they do that winds you up? If it's everybody, then it's you, not them. But if there are two people you can think of, that would definitely be a way of avoiding things that you're not gonna, are not going to make you a good captain. It's very elegant advice just because of its simplicity, really. Well, it was, uh, I can't claim it because it was advice that was given to me by other people, but I definitely followed it and I think it was worth it. And what would you say was your favourite aviation moment? I think there are lots of favourite moments, really, because I have loved my job so much. But one of my favourite moments, I think, has got to be landing on the Isle of Man, which is a really short runway on a filthy night in almost close to max crosswind conditions and knowing that I was about the only aircraft that had got in that day. And it's times like that when you've really risen to the challenge and got the passengers to where they want to go. And also you can kind of walk away and think, yeah, I did that. That's all right. I'm okay with that. So So um, that's your badge of honor then. I was, yeah, I was very, well, especially as I hadn't been to the Isle of Man before. As well, even as <laughs> it just proves that a runway is a runway, really, doesn't it? But um, yeah, those sorts of times when you've done a good job like that, they've been definitely my favourite moments out of the last 11 years. Now, you're also known for the ITV series um, Inside the Cockpit, where people know you're bubbly and funny, down to earth. Everybody knows you for that. How did it come about that you became part of that show? Well, the company had done that show already. They'd done the first series um, that hadn't gone as quite as they had hoped. And one of my colleagues and friends was in that series and she had recommended me to the people within the company that were organising it in the PR. And they approached me and asked if I'd be interested. And I kind of said, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, I, I was... comfortable that I was doing the kind of job I wanted to do as a captain and I thought well you know if I if I don't like it I can tell them I don't want to be part of it anymore and so that's what happened and pretty much a week after I agreed to do it they were filming so what's it like to be to do your job and to be followed by a camera crew I think we all watch reality tv um but what's it like to be at the center of it I loved it I loved every single moment (laughs) of it actually (laughs) And <laughs> I, um, I guess um, I've, I've wanted for a long time, I really wanted to show people what we do at work because you can't have your family in the flight deck anymore like you used to in the old days, you know. So I've never been able to show anybody that I know what I actually do in my job. And um, so it was a fantastic opportunity to showcase that. But also I think um, I just... I've never really shied away from being the centre of attention, I guess. So it was kind of a double whammy for me. I was like, yeah, great. Come and film me doing my job. This is brilliant. You know, why wouldn't I do that? And um, I, I just loved every minute of it. It was just a really amazing experience. And I met some really cool people as a result of it as well. So. Were there times where you wished the camera crew wasn't there? No, because they were lovely and I got to know my crew really well. So most of the time we had a dedicated camera crew and on the odd occasion they couldn't be there so you'd have someone else, but they were still great. And, but actually, no, they were great because they were very clear from the very beginning. They said, if anything happens where you don't want us to film, just tell us and we won't film. And actually, 
in the program, there's a, a, a clip of a passenger who collapsed into my arms. And I did turn them, I told them to turn the cameras off after that because it was wrong to be filming something like that. Um, and they turned them off and that was great. And had anything happened during a flight that I didn't want to have filmed, I had the ability to say to them, please don't use that. And they wouldn't have done. So, um, and actually the only time I had to say that to them was when um, I discovered on the way up to Iceland that the camera I had taken to take photos of the Northern Lights, knowing there was a chance of seeing them, um, the camera had run out of battery and so I couldn't use it. And I just said to them, do you know what? Don't show me not having a battery in my camera, please. You know. <laughs> so uh, I should add that I did have permission from the director of flight ops to have a camera in the flight deck for that right. occasion before <laughs> anyone wonders. <laughs> and you had a lot of, you had a lot of uh, different things like dealing with passengers who were drunk. And, you know, you mentioned the lady passing out the Northern Lights, but you also had a time where there was confusion over taxiways at uh, Schiphol. In Amsterdam. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> but was this a moment that eventually aired? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that, that aired and it was part of the program and I got a lot of banter for it from people. My brother still sends me socks with left and right on for Christmas, which is hilarious. But, yeah, it happened, but it didn't happen in quite the way it was described on the program, as I'm sure you can imagine. Were you nervous though that something that that something like that would portray you in the wrong way? Like to me, it says okay, a, even a pilot is human, right? I mean, anybody who knows pilots knows they're human beings, right? So to me, that's a human moment. But yeah. it, it's interesting to hear you say that you know I had complete control over what was aired and what wasn't. Yet you still allowed the camera crew to see a human, the human behind the machine, or the that's not really what I want to say, but the human, like that you are human. Yeah, no, I mean, to be clear, I didn't have control over what was aired. Um, it was more the case that if something like really bad had happened, right. um, I would have been able to then say, no, you're not to use that. So the example is, you know, I don't think it's right to film a passenger when they're clearly unwell, because that's not right to make TV out of that. Right. Um, so I was, I was able to stop things like that. But no, when I signed up to it, I knew that it was going to be warts and all. Um, actually, that um, occasion, it was literally just um, confusion between the two of us about which roundabout we were supposed to go round in Amsterdam, which is quite a confusing airport anyway. And um, we ended up in exactly the right place that the, control, the, the controller in the tower wanted us to be in that place, but we were just facing a different direction. So all we did was go round the roundabout a different way. And when we left to taxi onto stand, we just went round the roundabout a different way, which didn't affect any traffic. And it didn't actually happen in exactly the way that it was portrayed on the program, as you can imagine. And I just took it because, you know, it was one of those moments I might have watched it from behind a cushion, cringing a little bit. <laughs> but overall, I was happy that I came across in the way I largely wanted to, to show people that, yes, I'm as professional as I can be every moment but I am a human being I enjoy my job and I like to look after the people I work with so you know I kind of thought yeah there's there's always going to be something like that it doesn't make t good tv if nothing ever happens you know so I was I was happy to take that and we did get an email from the um controller after it aired saying I just want you to know that I wasn't bothered in the slightest about what happened. And if you'd ever like to come and visit us in the tower here at Schiphol, I'd love to see you. So, <laughs> Well, that's really great. That's a nice story. Yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, really nice. And, um, you know, we've seen you addressing passengers directly on the PA um, from the cabin itself, which is kind of rare, I think. I mean, I was a flight attendant for many years and... I can think of maybe some delays where the captain came out and sort of spoke in front of the cabin, but not often. Um, why, did you, why did you think it's important or what, what draws you to or drew you to make PA announcements from the cabin? Well, I decided when I got my command that um, that was something I wanted to do. And it, it kind of achieves a couple of things for me. So firstly, it meant that I was able to connect with my passengers in a way that I can't do if I stay behind a locked door. And that allows me to do a couple of things. It allows me to show um, 
a percentage of nervous passengers that there is on every flight, roughly um, 10% of passengers on, on every flight are uncomfortable in some way with what they're doing. So firstly, it shows people that there's a human being sitting at the front who has come out to say hello and it just sets people at ease. It means that there's maybe fewer people that are feeling a bit un uncomfortable by the time you've spoken to them. But the other thing it does is it, it allowed me to, uh, the other thing it did is it allowed me to gauge the mood in the cabin. Mm. So, you know, if it was a delay, it's an obvious, for me, it was obvious that if there was a delay, then I'd go out and speak because it would allow me to see how people were feeling about that. And depending on the destination would really determine how people were um, feeling about it. But it might not be a delayed flight. It might be just a very busy, rowdy flight to um, a, a party destination. And it just allows you to kind of make sure you're connecting with the passengers in a way that says, I'm here. And I'm really going to look after you and please just make sure you behave yourselves. And mm. I have actually been able to sort of stop the PA um, and say, actually, guys, I really need you to listen to me because if you don't listen to me, you won't listen to the safety demonstration. And that's something I need to know you've heard. And suddenly you find all these sort of lads generally um, mm. will sort of then sit there and go, oh, okay then. <laughs> and um, it's it, it gave me the ability to look after my crew in that way as well. Well, I think having been a cabin crew member myself, I think that definitely when you know the, the captain is behind you, I, you're right that there is a certain, um, you know, it, it's, it's support, right? It's just showing that you Absolutely. are there. And I think you're right too. There is a, a mood in the cabin. I always, when I was flying, always thought to myself, well, I always thought it, thought of it more as the, the, the beginning of a movie, like setting the stage for something that was to come. And, and I haven't thought about it in a long time, but it's true that there's a certain mood and that you would act. You knew if you could be funny, you knew if you could, uh, if this was going to be serious or what. And I never thought about it from the standpoint of, uh, of the pilots who sort of are, are cut off from that, especially, you know, with you know the flight deck door being locked and what's not so it's an interesting well there's uh, potential for a massive disconnect between you and your crew because of the door and you've got to find ways of breaking that door down essentially and making sure that you are able to communicate with your crew members and your passengers in a, in a way that shows them that you really are there to do a good job for all of them you know because at the end of the day you're doing a good job for the passengers but you're also doing a good job for the crew, your crew members, because you know, they're the ones that are going to help you run your day in the way that it needs to go. And, and actually, they're the ones that make you tea as well. So it's kind of important that you look after them. <laughs> um, the other thing I find super cool about you doing that is that we know that only, what, about 5% of uh, pilots are women. And I think when you're standing up there in front of the in front of everyone making an announcement you're showing little girls um not just little girls but women in general that this is a profession that they can reach the top of too i think that's Absolutely. inspirational and did you ever have any comments about that did, did anyone ever you know like i remember once when i was flying the, the an older lady was coming home from london said to her husband oh look it's a fee it's a male stewardess and clearly in her mind, there was a gender role that assigned to that particular job. And I'm just wondering if you had any funny anecdotes with respect to that. Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, you know, actually, I found quite often, because I'd obviously go out to say goodbye to people at the end as well. And quite often, you'd find people would want to say something, but they wouldn't necessarily know exactly what to say. So there'd be a lot of well dones and you know, you'd kind of go, thanks, I've been flying for a long time. Um, and I but, did you know, this three you have to take those today. comments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you have to take those comments graciously because actually what the person's trying to do is say, I'm acknowledging the fact that you are a woman and you're doing something I wouldn't normally expect a woman to be doing. Um, so you'd get those kind of comments. Um, sometimes there'd be something cheeky and I'd give a fairly cheeky response. <laughs> but um, actually, sometimes as well, there'd be people who'd get off. Um, a lady said to me one day that um, her daughter, she'd taken a photo of me doing the welcome on board PA. And she said, I'm going to show this to my daughter because she wants to be a pilot. And I want to show her that she can do that because 
she can see you. And I just thought that's kind of cool that uh, maybe a little girl, um, well, actually a little girl or a little boy could grow up and understand that a, a girl can be a pilot in the same way as a, a boy can be a, a flight attendant or, you know, the, the, there should be no issue with gender when it comes to our jobs. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's super cool. Now, we're talking about aviation. You were clearly passionate about it. And then all of a sudden, earlier this year, you give it up. What was behind Along that decision? Along came COVID, yeah. Well, you know, um, there are lots of reasons for my decision to step back. I could see the writing on the wall for the airlines, really, when COVID hit in the UK. Um, I could see that if there was ever any sort of recovery to the place that we were at the beginning of this year, it was going to take a long time. Well, that's what I felt. And I felt really sad um, on my lo- what turned out to be my last flight ever. Um, I felt really sad because it felt like something big was about to happen. And then, of course, we had lockdown and I really liked it. My children were at home and the weather was nice and I didn't have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and I didn't come home at three o'clock in the morning and I was sleeping well and spending time with the family, which, you know, my memories of that are probably slightly rosier than my um, young adult daughter's memories. I think they probably (laughs) thought I should have gone back to work. But, um, you know, um, I think I realised for a while that, you know, the commute from where I live to where I work you know, it's a 600 mile commute, which I was doing weekly and um, it takes its toll on you. And actually for the last 11 years, there's only been two of those years when I haven't had a big commute of some sort, whether it's a flight or a drive. So it, in the end, commuting was always going to be what stopped me from working for my airline. But I never could have imagined it was going to be now. But I think that just, you know, that time away from the job and the fact that my commute is no longer viable because there's not the flights that there were. So it would just mean a lot of time away from home. A number of other things that made me um, sort of finalise the decision really. I mean, firstly, by taking voluntary redundancy, that has allowed two other people to keep their jobs at 50%. So, you know, for me, that's an absolute win. But, you know, I'm in a very lucky position that I'm not the breadwinner. Um, we, we're not going to face any financial difficulties by me stepping back from working. So that does put me in a different position than some people. Um, we've reached a stage of our lives where our children have all finally gone to, to university. The last one's now gone to university. So, you know, it, I don't really get why I would spend the next 10 years of my life married to someone I never see because I'm always away working. And really, that's what it came down to in the end was... I had an opportunity to look at whether or not I wanted to carry on. I would have liked to have carried on for a lot longer under normal circumstances, but these are not normal circumstances. And I have to keep reminding myself that because sometimes I think, what are you doing? You've walked away from a job you didn't just love, but you adored and lived, you know. And I have to remind myself that I'm not walking away from a job under normal circumstances making a lifestyle choice under extreme circumstances when actually we don't know what the future of the, avi- the aviation industry is going to be like. So this way I leave with a little bit of money behind me. I'm in complete control of it and all the pressure is off. I don't have to worry about the commute or think about the sim- next SIM check or do the next tech quiz or anything like that. The pressure's all gone and, and I've had 11 amazing and glorious years and now's the right time it's better to leave now while I still enjoy it than I think Um, it's like a holiday you should leave when you still want to stay (laughs) and what I imagine that making this decision not that it was an easy decision but given that you had taken a pause from flying previously where you'd spent those eight years not flying did the, the idea that you know, if the timing's right another time, I can just get back into it. Did that play into your decision-making at all? Yeah, I guess if if the right opportunity comes along at the right time in the future, of course I can go back into it. Um, I'm not planning on keeping my license current because I think the chances of me getting a job on an A320 
again in the immediate future without having to do the commute that is one of the reasons I've stopped doing it is almost impossible there might be other opportunities that come in the future but you know if they don't come along then I'm happy with the fact that I've had 11 amazing years and the things I've done and the things I've seen there's nothing else I really feel I need to achieve I would like to have carried on for longer if I could have done but I can't so actually why waste the next few years worrying about something that you can't do anymore why not just say okay I'm only 47 I can still do other things and I can still throw myself into other things and be very happy doing something else so that's what I'm going to do and that's exactly what you've done um absolutely and, and you've you haven't left aviation completely um you've actually found a way to find to get furloughed pilots and cabin crew um <laughs> together for a great initiative so tell us about uh, project wingman yeah so um as the wall of um covid approached us and we started to all understand what it was going to have on our la- lives there were two things that were very obvious to me and I'd been sort of spending some time sort of in the, in the weeks up to when we finally locked down, thinking to myself, there's so many of us in the airline industry, we must be able to help the NHS in some way because it just, is, for me, it was a no-brainer. I, just, I wasn't exactly sure or how, but I knew there must be a way that we could help. And I'm a peer mentor, I was a peer mentor in my company, and through the peer mentor scheme, I was introduced to somebody else in another airline who had had similar thoughts. So we kind of put our heads together and came up with this idea of providing wellbeing support to the NHS, to NHS frontline workers. And we were able to put together a very simple program to take into hospitals and offer Tea and empathy, basically, was the offer in lounges um, away from patients. So it was providing frontline staff with just a space that was different from their workspace where they could go and sit down and have a cup of tea made for them for once rather than them doing all the caring and where they could just talk about their day and unload their burdens if they wanted to so and a lot of the time people would come in um to the lounges and they want to talk about flying and holidays and things like that so it was great because basically we had uniformed professionals and it was flight deck and and, um, flight attendants as well so it's air crew not just pilots and um uniformed professionals going into a professional environment but from a, a different working environment to say look we're here we understand the pressures that you um, are facing or we're trying to understand them. And, and guess what? We work in a similar environment and we have experience that can help you. And it just um, snowballed beyond our wildest dreams, well, to and be that's honest what I, with you. That's what I was going to say. You see, you talk about it as if there's a few uniformed <laughs> professionals who are doing this. But the reality is it's 5,000 volunteers that you've got. And you call them lounges, but well, everything in aviation we have to find a name for. But I understand they were considered first-class lounges, and that was at yeah. Like so the first-class hospitals. Yeah, well, we had uh, I think five and a half thousand crew, and we've got over eighty hospitals we've been represented wow. in. We've had pop-up lounges as well, and the first-class lounge idea came from the fact that the British public were so incredibly generous with donations to hospitals which is wonderful, but the hospitals were then like, well, how do we distribute this stuff? And the ones that we went into, they were able to say, well, can you help us to distribute the 8,000 tonnes worth of chocolate that we've been (laughs) delivered? And so we were able to do that. So because, uh, but it wasn't just chocolate. It was things like um, beauty packs and soft drinks and all sorts of other things that would just make life nicer for people who sometimes were spending long periods of time staying in the hospital away from home so that they could protect their families and protect the people they were caring for. So actually, those seemingly small acts had a massive impact on the lives of people that were basically keeping the country alive. And, and I think that cabin crew and pilots are very resourceful people, right? Because once the door is closed the only thing you have is what you have. And Absolutely. so 
when presented with, you know, I always think about it from a, from a crew perspective, but you know, we're short meals or whatever it was, and you just find a way to make it happen and no one ever goes hungry and we always find a way to do it. And so I, I think this is such a, an amazing way to, to use those talents, but I think too, it's the perfect fit. Definitely. Definitely. Because people will, people can be problem solvers. Um, so absolutely, you're, you're sort of suddenly thrown into a new environment, where, which is a hospital you're unfamiliar with, with staff you're unfamiliar with, and all kinds of things will come out of that. And it might be that you turn up one day and there's no milk, or there's no cups, or, or there's been a flood, or, or whatever. Um, all the things that can happen um, can just as easily happen on an aircraft, you know, mm -hmm. you haven't, you're missing something. So you just find a way to work around it to make sure that you're looking after the people you're there to look after. It's, it's almost identical. And actually, it's, it's allowed many of our redundant crew to actually find paid employment in the NHS because the NHS has looked to our crews and said, actually, there's a skill set there that we desperately need. Let's employ air crew. Which is a fantastic idea, by the way, to anyone who's watching. <laughs> Employ yeah. aircrew because they have loads of transferable skills. <laughs> well, not the least of which they've got very extensive uh, first aid training, and uh, you know, there's there. You're right; it's it's uh, massively transferable. Absolutely. And um, by the way, we had two lounges in New York. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I. I'm just, uh, I only have the paragraphs that Renault had uh, sent, but I think. Yeah, so we had, uh, we managed to set up two lounges. We had Wingman USA for just two lounges, but it was amazing. Wow. And I bet you don't realize while you're helping, you know, the, the healthcare workers, you're also helping those crew members who, instead of sitting at home and, and you know, dealing with the COVID 15 that we've all dealt with and, and the mental or the well being issues that the people who've been home and without work have had um you know you've you've managed to get people involved in something that makes them feel fulfilled at a time when they need it most absolutely yeah very much so and actually that includes myself you know project wingman came along and has given people a sense of purpose so for the crew that are in lounges it's given them structure to a day that otherwise would have had none because they've been out, had to be somewhere at a certain time. They've had to put their uniform on. They've had that mixing with other crew members that we all crave as crew. Mm. And okay, they might not all be from your, the same airline, but actually you all do the same job. So you have a shared knowledge base and um, you might do things slightly differently. Um, but it's been amazing actually to see the number. I mean, every airline that's represented in the UK has been involved in some way. Or crew members from every airline, even if they're not UK-based airlines. So we have crews from airlines all over the world who are involved in our lounges because they're here and they're able to help, it's, which has been absolutely fantastic. And, like, I think it's fantastic, but it's, it's been recognised at the highest levels in the UK as well, if I'm not mistaken. It has, yeah. That was a really... Um, amazing surprise actually um, we had been mentioned my local MP had mentioned us in the House of Commons and not very long after that um, we were contacted by um, the department a uh, government department about um, an award called a points of light award so um, we were given a points of light um, certificate and along with that came a letter from the prime minister saying on behalf of the nation i'd like to thank you for all the hard work you're doing and um yeah that was kind of um i think that was probably the first moment that i realized that all the work i'd been putting in over lockdown and and the furlough time had actually led to something quite big because i think when you're doing it every day you just you, know, you have your meetings and you sort out the problems and you go on to the next thing and you just go yep done that done that done that and you're building the relationships all the time i think sometimes you don't then step back from it and look at how big an achievement it is and and that was definitely a kind of a signpost to the size of achievement that let's face it you know yes I'm sitting here receiving the award, but actually that award was for the five and a half thousand crew that were going into the lounges day after day and giving their time to support our NHS colleagues. I'm sure you found a way to share that with everyone too. 
Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely awesome. did, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I, I applaud you. I think it's, uh, it's so fantastic um, that you were able to sort of find a way to put everybody um, to work for the good of, frankly, the people that were being served and the people who were, you know, doing it. It's, uh, I don't even know what to say. I think it's fantastic. Um, Thank you. You, you know, what do you think you'll miss most from flying? Well, I think I'll miss, I'll definitely miss the, uh, seeing the people that I loved working with. And obviously some of them have become friends that I'll be in touch with for the rest of my life. But some of them, um, I might not even have their phone numbers or, you know, remember when we flew together, but we had a great day out. So it's all the people that go into the, the, your, your day, basically. And also, you know, I'm sure it sounds a bit corny, but actually those people, in, particularly in my airline, are like family. It really is um, a very supportive, lovely place to work. Um, everybody is just keen to help each other out and make sure that everything works well for each other. So I will miss that. I think in terms of actually flying, I think the thing I'll miss the most, one of my favourite things was to be sitting at the end of the runway at Gatwick at dusk about to get a takeoff clearance to fly up to Inverness, which is home, obviously, mm. knowing that I was on a night stop and I'd be coming home for the night. And, um, you know, rolling down the runway and thinking, yeah, I've managed to complete my day successfully enough that I've managed to get off to Inverness in time to get to land and, and the airport not be closed. So, <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> that was always a bit of a winner, especially in the summer. But they're the times I'll miss. Um, but there's lots of things I won't miss and, you know, I won't miss the late nights and the early mornings and things like that. But yeah, the things I'll miss um, are just great. They're great memories that I'll always have. And of course, I'm really lucky that I've got th um, yeah, the two episodes of Inside the Cockpit to remind me of what I used to do. <laughs> I can actually sit and watch myself doing it if I want to. So, you know, I'm kind of lucky to have that. And with any luck, Project Wingman will sort of fade, if, if not disappear once, you know, the pandemic is done. So what are your other projects? Well, it, actually, interestingly, I think Project Wingman will continue for some time to come because we've got legacy lounges across the country and we're in the process of um, ramping up a launch of a mobile lounge in the form of a double-decker bus that we're going oh, to wow. tour around the country, bringing well-being to other parts. So that's something that's going to keep us very busy. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to being able to formally launch that actually. Um, but you know, for me, um, there are things that I have really loved to do in the past that I'm now able to sort of resurrect. So I mean, firstly, I just live in a really beautiful place. So just having time to enjoy that is great. Um, but I, I set up um, a few years ago, I set up a little business selling um, prints of paintings that I have done and they're on the uh, you know, prints, mugs, aprons, that kind of thing. And that's been relatively successful. Um, but I've never had the time to put into it um, that I've got now. So I'm going to be pursuing that and seeing if I can basically make enough of a living out of doing something else that I love. And, um, you know, my ideal would be to basically just do that and, and things like, you know, the gardening that I have enjoyed doing so much over the last six months as well but ultimately um you know wingman is going to take up quite a lot of my time still for the near future um this my, my business that i've i i'm working on even more now um ultimately i'm going to end up doing something i think that will help other people in the long run i don't know what it is yet. i've got some quite big ideas um, I just need to work out how feasible they are. And um, my, my, my biggest idea is to um, create a community garden where people with mental health needs can come and spend their time and help to um, deal with their mental health issues. And I think we're going to see a bigger need for that as time goes on. And we all deal with the fallout of what we've just been through and what we're about to face. So we'll see. Yeah, I think that wellness, uh, and, and um, it's nice to hear that it's going to continue and that it's not a temporary thing, but I think wellness is, you know, they've often said it's the second wave of this, and clearly it's an important part of uh, what we've all Definitely. gone through. We've all got to look after each other, and that's the bottom line, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, we always ask one last question at the end, um, and uh, it might seem a bit funny coming from where you are at this point, but what would you say to, to young pilots who are maybe now 
at the academy or people who were, you know, really hunting for their first airline job. Um, clearly, we've been through this crisis and, uh, you know, a pilot shortage has quickly turned its course completely. Um, but what words of encouragement would you have for someone who is, uh, you know, at the beginning of their career or hoping to have a career? Well, first of all, I think I'd say don't give up because it's not your fault that this has happened at a time in your career that you should be just starting out in your first job. So just don't give up hope because, you know, these things, not necessarily on this scale, but things like this come along every now and again. And the aviation industry will recover in some shape or form. So definitely don't give up. But I would say as well, don't take your career for granted because actually I think none of us could have ever imagined that we would be in a position where the career that we've worked so hard for would just disappear. We might think, oh yeah, I'll go to a different airline, but for the whole lot to just disappear, none of us could have imagined. And I think those people that come out of this um, the most successfully are going to be the ones who've got something else to do. Because don't forget, it's not just the airline industry that could be putting you in this position. It could be a medical that you could fail, or it could be any number of things that could mean that for some reason you can't fly anymore for a while. So I think have something else to do that you love, or at least you don't hate and then you're never going to be in a position where you feel um, helpless because, you know, when, when you step away from this industry, whether it's by choice like me or whether you're told you need to step away from it, there's going to be a period of time where you feel a bit adrift in the sea. And that has applied to me as well. You know, I'm at peace with my decision, absolutely. But don't think for one minute it was an easy decision that I don't care about. I've put a lot of thought into this and, and I've shed some tears over it as well, you know. So just um, have other things you can tolerate that you might actually end up then loving because that way you, can, you, you will be able to think, you'll be able to have a future and you'll be able to have hope for what's going to happen next. You're not going to end up in a situation where you just think, I genuinely don't know what I'm going to get out of bed for every day. There'll mm. always be something. So that would be, I think, my, my biggest piece of advice is always have something else up your sleeve. And I think people need to look at your career path as well to say that not every pilot ends up in the flight deck the same way, that there can be gaps, Absolutely. that there can be long gaps, that there are other things to do, there are things connected to the industry that they can do, as you've demonstrated with Project Wingman. So I think you're, you're quite inspirational for people right now. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Well, I hope uh, if, if, if one person can be inspired by seeing what I've done and what we've done at Wingman, then the whole thing's worth it, you know. And I think you can rest assured that that's the case. <laughs> Emma, it's been Thank an you. absolute pleasure talking to you. I think that was... It's uh, been a pleasure talking to you too, Patrick. Thank you so much. It's been really <laughs> nice to meet you. The same here. And I want to remind everyone that they can go to airside.aero for... Um, lots of great tools for, for pilots looking to get back into the sky. There's the resume builder there. There's this podcast, lots of great articles. Airside.era, go check it out. Thanks again, Emma. Thanks very much, Patrick. See you again. Take care. CAE Pilot Podcast is brought to you by CAE, the global leader in training for the civil aviation, defense and security, and healthcare markets. For more information, check out CAE.com.